0: You are listening to Win Win, a podcast brought to you by the global nonprofit, Win, Women in Innovation. Each episode features inspiring innovators from the startup world, innovation consultancies and Fortune 500 companies who share their innovation secrets and career trajectories every Monday. As for me, I'm your host, Zoya Kozikov, global marketing lead at win by night and product manager and university-level faculty by day. Just like your average millennial, I have a strong affinity for anything that reminds me of the 90s or early 2000s. And while this podcast is not about the glory that was butterfly hair clips and Jenny from the block, today I get to talk to Laura Joss, who is Global Director of the Customer Experience Product Research Team at Motorola. We spoke all about the iconic razor phone and the considerations that she and the team had behind redesigning it and reimagining it for today's day and age. Laura's background is unbelievably impressive. She leads a global team that is based out of Chicago, Sao Paulo, Beijing, and they happen to be all women, which is really cool and unusual for the industry. During Laura's time at Motorola, she has helped launch numerous smartphone innovations, including the Motorola Razr, Moto Mods, and other pain point-solving software innovations. We also talk about Laura's PhD and how she really weaves in research into innovation on all levels and at all aspects of the company. I also found today's conversation really relevant to the times as we consider what it means to design technology that is both commercially successful and also positively contributes to the user's well-being. Laura is a large advocate of mental health and well-being, and we speak about that too, so lots of takeaways, and I hope you learn as much as I did. Hi, Laura. Welcome to the Win Win Podcast.
1: Hi. Nice to meet you.
0: So, so excited to have you. I can't wait to dive in about all of the innovation happening at Motorola. I mean, there's so much to discuss, but you are global director of research there and have been for 11 years, which as a millennial, I mean, I am highly impressed. So I guess just to kick it off, I'd love to know what brought you to Motorola and what would you say made you stay?
1: Yeah, great question, good kickoff. Um, So I actually started my career in more of an academic setting. I was doing research in judgment and decision making and then did my PhD in cognitive neuroscience. So focusing on things like how language is processed in the right side of your brain, uh, nothing that you would think would be associated with Motorola. But during my PhD, an internship became available during one of the summers at Motorola. And I had never heard of design research ergonomics, human factors, none of that was on my radar, but my advisor had asked me was I interested in potentially trying you know, something in more of an industry setting for an internship over the summer. I thought, why not give it a try? I applied for the internship, I got it, and then once I was done with my PhD, I ended up joining Motorola, and so I've been there ever since, um, and that was back in 2010. In terms of what's made me stay, the tech industry changes so quickly and so much that it always feels like there's something new that we're working on. There's always a new challenge. Um, we've gone, you know, from being focused on North America to focusing globally. And so I've also gotten opportunities to learn about different cultures or how different groups of people live and use technology. And so there's always some new challenge that keeps me interested and keeps me staying with Motorola.
0: As you started at Motorola, have you felt like you've really been able to apply that PhD background that you have, or do you feel like, you know, it was something that you did for the love of it and now you've left it behind?
1: I get that question a lot, actually, because it is very different background. There are some things, obviously, that got left behind. I'm not anymore looking at how language is processed on the right side of your brain or or trying to understand how people judge portion sizes, for example. But, you know, research is... Is research that you still need methodology, you still need to know how to do a rigorous study and control for variables. And so, even though I might not be doing the exact same type of research as I was doing, um, I do still use a lot of those skills and a lot of what I've learned. Um, In addition, you know, a lot of my work and my My academic background was in behavior and in observing behavior and measuring behavior. And that's something really important to do when you're working with consumers, too, is knowing, you know, not just what are people saying, but what are maybe some of the unarticulated things that they're experiencing, doing like that, that becomes a part of it, too. And so there's this whole set of skills that I don't think you would think would come over that do going from academic to, to more industry type research.
0: And we'll definitely talk all about your all-female team, or so rumor tells me. But when you are looking to build out your team now, is there a particular background that you look for? Or are you open to kind of all walks of life?
1: We're definitely open to all walks of life. I think, you know, one of the things that I think makes our team really unique is that not, I don't think there's any two people that have the same exact degree. Because Mm -hmm. there's a lot of different degrees that apply to a research position, you know, within design or product research. So we've had anthropologists, we've had people who have hybrid degrees in engineering and design, psychologists, like all sorts of different degrees.
0: Yeah, no, super, super interesting. So I think going back to when you came into Motorola, you came in 2010. And 2010 was actually the year of the iPhone 4. And i recently read some released emails from steve jobs that spoke about the iphone nano which was actually a product that was supposed to launch that year and obviously never made it so curious about what was happening at motorola in 2010 and was the Razer the first project that you took on there
1: No, definitely not. The razor wasn't the first project I took on. You know, when I first started, I was more focused on software experience research. So I was doing more, we were looking at things like, how do we make your phone smarter for you? So Mm -hmm. doing that balance of, you know, not being creepy, not making it seem like, you know, we're invading your privacy, but also something as simple as knowing that you're home and we should connect your phone to your Wi-Fi for you. Things that mm. happened today that no one would even think about being weird back then, totally. that was still fairly new. So right. it was more of those types of, of projects at the very beginning.
0: And so being at the company for 11 plus years, what did your trajectory internally look like? And how did you go about getting promoted into this you know, incredible role?
1: Yeah. So I started doing software research, like I mentioned. And in that case, you're working with a smaller team on a very specific... Thing. and then as I went along in years you know it's just more about expanding exposure expanding the breadth of projects instead of the depth so going from doing one thing in depth to taking on more and more responsibility until I was doing more leading our hardware research so you know not just one phone but across all of our phones all the hardware research and in kind of climbing up that way where you just take on more and more and get more exposure meet more people you know really push for research to to have a seat at the table at higher and higher levels so that that insight is helping to drive what we consider to be our innovations.
0: Yeah, and it's such an interesting balance to strike especially because I obviously research is a key part of any company especially, you know, technology and innovation whether it's a brand or a product or anything else, but oftentimes I've seen companies look at it as what I would refer to as kind of like the pre-phase in a product development how do you ensure that your work is agile and sticking with the product development process before, during and after it?
1: That's something that we always think about, talk about, figure out how to improve upon, (laughs) because there's research that you can do at pretty much any stage of product development before it's even an idea to it's shift and we want to make sure we got everything right or find opportunities to improve next time around. Um, A lot of it is having really tight relationships and collaborations with the product team. So Mm -hmm. we very much work very hard not to be seen as a service, but as an integral part of the team. So if you have an engineer and a designer in the room, you should be also looking to have a researcher in the room because it's not just, if you come to me with a research question, it's probably already too late to do the research. It probably was a need a month and a half ago. If we're in those meetings, we can catch that. We can make research plans and we can do that research to line up nicely with the product cycle. Um, And so really it's, it's timing, it's collaboration, it's knowing who you need to be clued into so that you catch those things and can do things timely, especially with how fast, the mobile industry moves it's so so fast
0: these days mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and so wondering about your process as a whole as you mentioned research does and should and can come in at every part of the product development process when you are thrown some of those bigger questions about you know disrupting the mobile industry or, or something that's really really big what is your process and and where do you begin
1: I think we always try to begin with what are people doing today? You know, one of the things people say a lot about research is that when you talk to users, they don't know what they want, and that's absolutely true. They don't necessarily know what the innovation is that they want or need, but they definitely know what they're struggling with today. They know what's not working well for them. And if you can take those those little tiny nuggets of this isn't working or that's a little tricky, and you can bring that back to a product team and ideate and do brainstorming and co-create with those things, that really can help shape something that could be ending up being a really meaningful innovation.
0: Yeah. And I know that, you know, in the innovation space, whether it's the workshops that we run at women in innovation or or my own background and studies in the innovation industry, we were always told that a good product innovation really hinges upon an insight. I've seen the word insight to be such an elusive and sometimes woo-woo word. So from somebody who is really doing this on their day to day, how would you define an insight? And then how would you find a good insight?
1: Ooh. <laughs> Drama. <laughs> That's a good one. No, I was like Ooh, those are good. Um you know I think different people have different definitions for insight. It you're absolutely right. It's kind of a catch-all. Um to me, it a lot of it comes down to an observation where you can either hear or see someone sharing something that feels like it's important. If it's something that's not working for them, for example, it might be something really small that doesn't make it not insightful or helpful. You still want to grab onto those small opportunities because those can lead to big innovations. Sometimes the simplest change can lead to a whole behavior change that makes a big difference for a user. Right. And so it could be something bigger. It could be some giant quantitative survey that you do that ends up, you know, with some key finding that that's also an insight. But I think I think it's not counting out some of those smaller moments that also can lead to big ideas because if you start small and then you ideate and you co-create and you brainstorm it can grow into like a really exciting thing for a user.
0: Yeah, and I think to that point, there are so many different ways to approach research and then actually discover those insights. Um, you may not know, but I work at a very large Fortune 500 financial services company, Citi, and I'm so lucky to have the most amazing research partners that are able to run all of these studies. But some of my background also includes working at, you know, seven, eight, person startups. And research does tend to fall to the side, um, just because there's no capacity or resources. If you were to kind of advise or work with a smaller team, where would you recommend that those without the research resources begin? Or what is that kind of non-negotiable piece of research that you'd uh, recommend for them to apply?
1: Honestly, sometimes it's just getting the perspective from somebody who's not working on the thing you're working on. <laughs> we used to do uh, trainings for teams that we called Research for Everyone when we were limited in research resources. You know, we can't be on every project, but there are skills that anyone can have, even if it's just knowing how to ask an unbiased question to get some feedback on what you're working on. It's not necessarily rigorous research, but it's still allowing you to get some feedback from someone who isn't looking at this thing day in and day out and knows the technical details or knows all the detailed background pieces that could make them be a little bit biased and maybe not as able to understand how a normal everyday person who's never seen this might understand it. And so even just Taking a step back, taking a prototype, it could even be paper, it could be a wireframe, it could be a drawing, out to someone separate from the project and having them look at it and walk you through what they see. Mm. That alone can be very powerful and really helpful, even if you don't have the resources for full blown research.
0: And of course, you come from the world of academia, so I'm sure you know all the million design research methodologies (laughs) and, and things, but how do you feel about people kind of? combining a few or creating their own design research methodology do you see merit in there or do you say kind of stick stick to the basics
1: no there's totally merit in that for me it's not about the method as much as it is about the question so what is it you're trying to learn what is it you are trying to inform and from there if you have a solid research question the method will likely follow now there are opportunities to get creative you might want to Make it be a little bit more engaging for the user. So, you know, for example, we've done research where it could have been a survey. Instead, we made it a game where we Mm. brought users in and had them play like a game based on game theory where they have to like allocate resources and things like that in a limited resource environment, you know, those types of methods are not necessarily a design research method. It's something I pulled in from judgment and decision making, but you can always come up with new ways to answer the question. It's really, do you have a solid question?
0: And then along with the quality of the question, are there any KPIs or kind of measurements of success that you think are really fundamental to research? Because I also think that the other side of it is like the curse of knowledge or just having way too much information or too much data.
1: Yeah, I think sometimes people want to use research as just a checklist item. Like, look at it, we did it. People said they liked it, and that's right. not good <laughs> enough. Like, that's not going to help you. Your product is not going to be successful because someone with no cost involved said, "Yeah, that seems cool." Um, so, it definitely it is important to make sure that. You know, not only that the question is solid, but that also there's commitment from the stakeholders to do something with the findings. So, a question I always like to ask is what do you plan to do? if this research turns out X or in the unanticipated Y. So we're hoping it turns out well, but if it's a problem, do we have time to make changes? Will we make something different happen with the product? If the answer to all of that is no, even if you have a really solid question, but the data won't be used, it's not a good study to run.
0: Yeah. And, and I think it's, it's really important to bring that kind of realistic approach to it because kind of like you already mentioned first of all there are things that people could say but then they mean something else but also just just the fact that the research needs to actually be applicable so i think getting into more of your industry motorola and Razor specifically you know what have you learned about the razor throughout the last 10 years that you've worked on the product and what's really surprised you about working on the product
1: What's really fascinating? One of the questions we get asked a lot was that when we started making the new razors, you know, did we set out to replicate the razor design from previous mm. years, from back in like two thousand and four? And no, we actually didn't. We went through all sorts of different prototypes to understand what form factor resonated the best, seemed to, to provide users with the most. Pleasing, you know, closed and open state experiences and everything just kept going back to the razor form factor. And so we realized, okay, like that, that was something then, and it's still something now and let's go ahead and go for it. Um, now that we have the razor out and about in the world, you know, some of the things that we thought were going to be really, um, you know, pleasing or fun for users, you know, we're definitely seeing happen. You know, we hear women talk a lot about how great it is to be able to fit their phone in their purse again or in their pocket. You know, women's Mm. pockets are not made for
0: anything. For nothing.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Nothing at all. And so to be able to fit your phone in your pocket is this like big, exciting experience for women or like your small clutch purse. You don't have to like now bring a bigger bag out just because you want to have your phone with you. You actually can have a smaller bag again. So mm-hmm. you know, for women, there's some really big wins with the razor. I mean, men too. We heard a bicyclist talking about how he could fit it in his um, front jersey pocket while going on his like 50 mile bike rides. Mm-hmm. And so you know, it's it's insights like that that are really interesting for us to hear. Um, you know, they're hypotheses we had, but to see them play out in real life is really exciting.
0: And then I think going back to kind of the question I asked you earlier, but applying it to the razor, I mean, the the competition is obviously so crazy. I feel like every company is releasing a credit card and some sort of device, uh, whether that's a phone or or anything else. But I guess I'm curious, when you started reinventing and re-envisioning the razor, were you kind of trying to solve for the problems that perhaps other companies or other phones didn't solve for? Or what was the approach? Do you just go for the white space innovation?
1: Really, I think it was more about figuring out, you know, What is it that users really want and need? Um, And that's where we really landed on, you know, there's this duality where people want a very big screen and we hear it over and over again. And when they're given a choice between a small one and a big one, they take the big one, but they take the big one and they talk about how hard it is to handle and how hard it is to carry around Mm -hmm. and when you're not using it it's just it's starting to get in the way and so it wasn't necessarily about what the competition was doing it was more about you know what user needs can we address with this innovation and with this form factor and then how do we go from there and so you know not only having a device that goes from smaller to bigger but also you know what is the experience when the device is smaller you know what do you need to give users so that they still feel like they're getting value out of the closed state and it's not just about their phone shrinking down to being a pocketable size and that's where like our quick view display comes into play you know it's a small screen on the front of the device it allows you to see what the phone is trying to tell you you can do quick interactions on the front without having to open it and so it's usable in both the closed and open state it solves this pocketability challenge that we've been seeing in the industry for a while you know there's a lot of user needs a lot the way that we were able to kind of check off by doing the form factor we were doing and you know let the competition do what they're doing because we know we're on the right path with addressing these things we're hearing directly from our consumers
0: yeah and i think in what you mentioned there are some of these um elements of returning to basics if you will like I think about the razor that I had in probably like 2005 or 2006 and you know I loved using it and it had its set of features and same thing with kind of like the Nokia I used to play snake on it and and now having this phone that does you know all these different features I feel like me and a lot of my peers actually are looking to kind of di- disconnect disable and go back to to basics Are you seeing in your industry this trend of people wanting to kind of disconnect while still being connected in other ways?
1: Absolutely. It's one of the things we hear about a lot. You know, technology is available at your fingertips every second of the day, and on one hand, that's a huge benefit. But on the other hand, it creates this stress of always being connected. And we hear people talking about how they want a better phone life balance. But Mm -hmm. in the moment, it's really hard to do that. Because you you go to check an email, you see a badge on your social media icon, you open it, you're scrolling, 20-30 minutes have gone by. And you're so annoyed at yourself, but you didn't realize it at the time. You were just lost in your phone mm-hmm. and so we do hear this need from people to want to figure out ways to kind of improve upon that or reduce the amount of time that they're lost in their phone again for example with razor the quick view display we're hearing people telling us when we interview them you know how has owning the razor changed the way you use your phone and they say I find myself going into the phone less because I have this the quick view display it lets me see what I need to see and just that small pause just that tiny little like brief pause where you're looking at your phone and deciding do I want to open it or not is helping people kind of just use their phone a little bit less but they don't feel like they're giving up anything and that's a pretty big thing for, for trying to get at this whole phone life balance issue that we're hearing people talking about.
0: And we always hear about mindfulness, right? Mindfulness in so many forms. But in that moment specifically, unless you have that pause, oftentimes mindfulness is is not top of mind. So as somebody who's been doing the research around this, who's been designing products and experiences that help people perhaps embed this mindfulness into their lives, how would you say one should strive to have a healthy relationship with their smartphone?
1: Definitely. That's that's something I think that... Is becoming more and more a topic of conversation. Um, you know, one thing that you can do is really just practice being more mindful and more intentional so when you go to reach for your phone ask yourself like what am I doing with my phone right now I wanted to go check an email okay I'm gonna go check that email now I'm gonna put the phone down but you can also do things like set a timer so I know I want to go scroll through social media but I don't want to get lost I'm going to set a timer on my phone so that I when that timer goes off I'm putting the phone down or if you know you're at a point in time where you just don't want to be distracted flip your phone over so you're not seeing the display light up if you have an incoming notification or use do not disturb mode and just shut your phone off for you know 30 minutes to an hour so that you can focus. I think to start, it's going to require some actual effort because we've just become so ingrained in just habitually going to our phone and right. it's going to require a little bit of a step back and awareness to, to shift it a little bit
0: a lot of what you're discussing are such specific behaviors that, you know, you can only really figure out by doing that research and really being aware of not just the market space and and what people are thinking about, but the specific users using your product. So I guess I wonder about the composition of your team, because oftentimes we've seen that products are made and the end consumer is not the person that's represented on the team. And so the product is, you know, because of the biases is just not made for them. So you do have an all female team. So I'd love to hear more about that and how that came about.
1: Yeah. um, I'm super proud of my all-female team. I think it's really cool. It's really great. They're all really talented. You know, it, It did just kind of happen to come about. Research in particular does tend to have more females than males in it, just when you look at the numbers. So that has something to do with it. My team's located in different countries. So I've had some team members in Brazil, team members in China, team members here. And so not only do we get this amazing all-female team but we also get a lot of different perspectives from different countries different Mm -hmm. cultures and that's really great too um so that then when we're doing our product research you know we're not just hearing from one subset of people we're hearing from people all over the place and and that's a really rich source of data for us
0: yeah, and you mentioned that uh, research is an industry which does tend to have a lot more women. I mean, I talk to women all the time on this podcast, and so often I hear, oh, I'm in this male-dominated industry. So it's actually really it, it's really refreshing to hear that research is not a male-dominated industry. Um, why do you think that is?
1: I honestly don't know if I have the answer to that. I mean, there's definitely different types of research, and so I wouldn't say all research is, is sure. female-dominated, but with qualitative research, which is a lot of what design research is, a lot of it is you know being a good listener, being a little bit intuitive, like soft skills that are really important that you know, males and females can be very strong at, but you do see a lot of females really excelling in that field
0: our mission here at Women in Innovation is to get more women in leadership roles. And and I think a big part of that is some of those skill sets that I think are being more and more valued. And I think that the innovation industry in itself is being disrupted. You are definitely in an industry that's been disrupted over and over again. So outside of some of the conversation that we've had already today, what would you say are some of the trends that you're seeing in terms of disruption in your industry?
1: You know, the tech industry is Constantly changing. It's one of those things that tomorrow something completely new could come along that just flips everything on its head. Um, You know, so right now, just looking to see, you know, not just what's the hardware look like, but what are some of the different software offerings that you're seeing across Mm -hmm. tech. Now, how do different devices work together? I think, especially with the pandemic, with people having to rely on technology more to stay connected, to be able to see each other and hear each other. You know, there's a lot of, of interesting things being talked about and people are trying to figure out how do you make that human connection feel more human when you can't be in the same room together anymore and I think that that's going to be a really interesting thing to continue to watch
0: Yeah, and I guess specifically as it relates to research, I think we are now all communicating in these little boxes on the internet. So I'm curious how that's affected your work as a researcher, as well as the types of insights that you're able or unable to evoke out of this 2D world.
1: Yeah. I mean, when the pandemic first started and everything shut down, that was definitely a big conversation that my team and I had, which was, you know, how do we continue to gather these insights? We don't want things to slow down. We know we need to keep moving forward, but we have a very real challenge because the work we do is usually face-to-face interviews where you can see people as well as hear people give them stimuli to touch and feel. And so, you know, what are we going to do? Mm-hmm. Um we are very lucky that we have a great 3D printing team at wow. Motorola. And so we were able to print 3D models of some of the new devices we were exploring and form factors we were looking at. And then mm-hmm. through our employees, find employees who you know had kids home from college or people who were staying with them and quarantining with them mm-hmm. that were not Motorola's that we could say, okay, we're going to send you a box of these different prototypes now I need you to help that person get on the camera with wow. us so we can still keep doing this research. And, and it, it still, it worked out really great. We were still able to get really good feedback, help make decisions early on in the product process. You know, it, it was, we were very fortunate that we had this team to kind of collaborate with and help us um, get those materials out to people and still do the work we were doing in a safe way.
0: And I'm sure it must be exciting to have, hopefully, new opportunities to be in person with somebody. But what are you going to keep that you've learned in the pandemic? Or what are research methods that you actually are deciding to stick with, hopefully, in the post-pandemic era?
1: A lot of the remote software testing tools are really great out there. There's a lot out there that I wasn't as familiar with because mm-hmm. we didn't have the need. Once the need came up, finding things that would allow us to do A-B testing or mm-hmm. send out prototypes, you know, things that we wouldn't have maybe thought about previously, it allows us to reach more people. So even if we don't have a researcher, let's say in the UK, we have these remote testing tools that we can still reach out to someone in the uk so it allows us to get a broader set of data across more countries and more places Um, and that's something i'll definitely carry forward even when we can get back to being face-to-face
0: yeah it's just a whole new world of opportunities which is so exciting Laura, thank you so much. I've enjoyed picking your brain for the last 30 minutes or so. It's been really amazing. But before I do let you go, I'd love to ask you an innovator question. And that is, where do you see yourself and your industry one month from now, one year from now, and 10 years from now?
1: So as far as myself goes... I never set those kinds of plans because <laughs> I would have never ended up here had I done that. I would have said no to the Motorola internship, I wouldn't have taken the position. So I try as much as possible just to stay really open to seeing you know, how things change, how things shift, what opportunities come, and how we can take advantage of those. And in the tech industry, I think again, it's so quick, it changes so rapidly, and it changes in response to what's going on in the world around us. So for example, if you had ask me three years ago, do you think you'll be designing products that should hopefully help in a pandemic world? I would say, what are you talking about? <laughs> no. right. Um, and so I think, you know, it's, it's, watching those opportunities, responding to what's going on in the world and continuing throughout all of that to stay clued into what normal people are experiencing and where there's opportunities to keep improving those experiences so that it Mm -hmm. serves them the best that it can. So that innovation is meaningful and not just innovation for innovation's sake.
0: I love that. Well, thank you so, so much for joining me today, Laura.
1: No problem. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Thanks for listening to Win Win, brought to you by WIN, Women in Innovation, and myself, Zoya Kozikov. If you enjoy this podcast, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit women innovation.co to learn more about our organization, programming, and other opportunities. And remember, when women innovate, we all win.